If you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to the book of Acts in the New Testament. It's right after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then there's this book of Acts. We're going to kind of take some passages out of the first chapter there with our, our series and our, our study today. But um, before we get into that, we're, we're starting a new series uh, this month, kind of going through understanding who we are as a church and, and what we are um, commissioned by God to do. I know a lot has transpired over the past couple of years here at this church. I mean, there's a lot of frustrations, there's heartache, there's, there's been elaborate celebration and, and hope and joy of what's to come. Uh, the ministerial leadership has changed quite a bit. The look has is definitely changed. We are a different people. Not only that, but the church itself has changed as well. We have gone through this past year a pandemic which has revolutionized the way the church actually operates, ministers, serves. It's no longer just about everybody gathering together on a Sunday morning. It's about trying to find ways to reach out and to meet people where they are. And the differences of everything that's transpired this past year, it has caused the church, not only here in Union, but around the world, to refocus how they be the church. And I think that's been a good thing. So in the midst of what we might classify as an awful you know, year of, of life because of this uh, coronavirus, it has also created a new move within the church to do something different and to, instead of wait for people to come to us, that it makes us go to them. So we're starting this new sermon series it's going to help us discover what holds us together and what makes us unique in the kingdom of God, and especially here in our, in our, in our community of union. We're going to examine maybe some of our beliefs, our heritage, our roots, and see who we are today, and, and we're going to figure out which direction we are going as a church, what the momentum is carrying us, and where are we going to end up? What will we look like down the road? So as we begin, I think it's important that we talk about the mission of the church. What is it that God expects from us or for us or from who we are and what we do? Well, after spending some time digging through the Scriptures and kind of going through and examining the history of this church, the leadership has struggled with trying to really focus on who we are. I really shouldn't say it's a struggle because... I think God is giving us wonderful direction in the things that we're doing. And so we're going to focus our attention on what God wants us to do as a church. And we have decided, out of a biblical perspective, who this church is. We're a church that, that makes disciples who love God and others. It's a simple way of putting it. That's who we are. We're a church that makes disciples who love God and others. And as simple as that may sound, it is difficult, probably more than we can imagine. It's not easy making disciples because some people don't want to be disciples. And it's not easy loving God because we know our own fallen nature. And it's not easy loving others because we know their fallen nature. But yet God has called us to do that. So we can get sidetracked 
And we can try to do all kinds of things by putting all of our efforts and energy and finances into building buildings and creating programs and, and designing all kinds of things that are going out and about. We can speak on social issues and, and get ourselves into political arguments about what's happening, what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. And we can focus everything else. But what Christ wants us to do is to focus on the mission He has called us, and not only us, but His church to do, which is to make disciples who love God and others. So with that in mind, I want us to look this morning at the first 11 verses in the book of Acts chapter 1, and we'll come into some other contexts and some other scriptures as well. But as we do this, we discover that in these verses, we're going to consider the reason, the resource, and the responsibility that we have for this mission. First off, the reason for the mission is this. We begin with these words in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So, in essence, what Luke is saying is, I, I wrote you a letter before, and in that letter I talked about Jesus. And we have that as one of our gospel books in the Bible, the book of Luke. And so the same man is writing not only the book of Luke, but now he's coming into this book we're going to call the Acts of the Apostles. And, and Dr. Luke is going to explain kind of like a, well, we left you at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and that was it. Let me tell you what happened after that. And so he writes to us here this book of Acts. The book of Acts is just this continuation of the ministry of Jesus through the life and the actions of his disciples, the church. So therefore, the reason for our mission really is, as Luke is saying, we have to go back to Jesus. Because the, the, everything was about Him, and it still is about Him and how He is changing our world. So we go back to Jesus, and He has called us now to make disciples who love God and love others, and He's going to show us through this writing of the book of Acts how that transpired. Now, unfortunately, there are a lot of people telling us today that it really doesn't matter what you believe. You can believe whatever you want because in the end, it's just about you. And if you think you're going to get to heaven because you just think you're going to get there, well, that's great. The more the merrier. But the truth is, it's not about us and what we think. It's about Christ and what He thinks. So I have to disagree with some of these people because I think that our belief really does determine our destiny. But not only that, but our belief determines who we are today, and what we do. So we act upon how we believe in Christ or do not believe in Him and what we believe. Let me give you an example. Do you remember the, uh, a few years back, it started back in 1993, the True Love Waits initiative? Maybe some of you went through that yourselves when you were a, a teenager. Right? But True Love Waits started as a, as a program to encourage young people in America Really, these teenagers, how, how to, to study the purpose and the meaning of, of purity in life and chastity and, and keeping themselves pure in their sexuality until they got married. 
Now, they would stand up in churches like this all across America, and they, these kids would stand up with a little card that they had signed that would give a pledge that they were going to remain chaste until they got married. And the church would stand and applaud them because they're making a stand in a, in a very immoral world and, and trying to go opposite of what the world is telling them to do. Many times these young people, they did their best to fulfill that promise they made to themselves and to God. And unfortunately, many times they didn't. But during that period, there was this movement as well from mothers that were in the church, mothers of these daughters primarily that signed these cards and said they were going to do this. And so they thought, I'm, the best thing we can do is to make sure that our daughter keeps these promises. And so they, they determined that they were going to have this goal in mind, that any time a young man would come to take their daughter on a date, they wanted to see the card. If you don't have the card, you don't get to take her out. Why? Well, because what you believe determines how you're going to act. And we need to know, do you believe in living a chaste lifestyle until you get married? And if you don't believe that, you're not taking my daughter out. So sometimes when we leave, that we believe that, that something such as, as sex is special and it's designed to be used only in the context of marriage between a husband and a wife, and outside that, those bounds, it's called immorality, and you're not going to enter into it. If you believe that, then you're going to remain pure until your marriage. But if you don't believe that, you might entice somebody who does to go the opposite direction. Now, I want us to understand this. What we do believe impacts how we act, not just as teenagers, but even when we move on further in life, when we become adults, and we move up into our aging years, still what we believe helps determine how we act. That's why the Apostle Paul challenged Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, when he said, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. He says, persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's important that we watch ourselves. We guard ourselves by the things within this world that we don't allow them to change us, but we allow the Spirit of God and the Word of God to be impacting in the way that we live. You see, what you think about something, it initiates actions. So James tells us in James, the first chapter, verse four, uh, 14 and 15, he says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James understood it. It's what you think, what you believe, and all of a sudden that grows within you and it produces a lifestyle that ultimately can lead to our own death because of sin. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 6, verse 43 through 49. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. 
a good person out of the good treasure where? Of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. We see it's from the heart that things begin to flow and then out of that heart and out of what we believe in life then we even start to talk it. And people can tell it by the way we communicate. But he goes on and he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? You don't do what I tell you, you do what you're all wanting to do. And everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he is like. So he gives us another story. He's like a man who is building a house. And he dug deep and he laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against it, that house, and it could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like the man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream rose and broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. What we believe impacts what we do. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in the truth of His Word? So what do you believe? And I don't want to be presumptuous about it, so I'm not going to ask you that and assume that you believe all these things. But let me kind of share with you some things that I believe about Jesus. And let's see if we have some connection with this. I believe that Jesus is a literal person, yet He is God Almighty in the flesh. I I believe that that He was born of a virgin, like those who took the true love waits promise, and that He performed real miracles, that He fed multitudes of people, that He he healed the sick and the lame and the blind, and, and He even raised people who had died back to life. I believe that that all those miracles happen for a purpose to prove that Jesus truly is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus taught truth. Matter of fact, I believe He is truth. And I believe that He will never find a better system of ethics or morality or how you can live your life other than what is presented by Jesus Himself. And He really does a good job of doing that in the book uh, in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount there in which our our kids on on Wednesday night have been going through, the teenagers, this manifesto uh, of Christ, teaching them how to live morally upright in an immoral world. And if we want to do away with hatred, prejudice, injustice, I mean, those are words we hear every day on our news, isn't it? And if we want to get rid of those, I believe that that what we need to do is we, we want to see people living in peace and harmony, We need to go back and learn the lessons that Jesus taught. I'm convinced that until the hearts of men and women surrender themselves and empty themselves into Him and allow His Spirit to actually lead us and guide us, we'll never have peace in this world. I believe that Jesus, though He is God in heaven, He emptied Himself 
that he gave up that equality with God right there and his glory in heaven. And he, he came down into this world and he took on flesh and blood like you and me so that he might be able to experience all the frustrations we have in life, all the temptations that we've got to face, that he might himself feel the hurt and the anxiety that, that people don't care for him and that people turn on him and that he would ultimately feel what death was like, even death on a cross. I believe that he died a, a vicarious death for us in which he died for us as an atoning sacrifice to take away our sins so that we don't have to worry about facing God in judgment on our own because he will do that for us. I believe that he paid all the price that we would have to pay for our debt of sin. It'd be like a, a banker calling me tomorrow morning and telling me, hey, John, somebody in your church loves you so much that they paid off your mortgage, and you don't ever have to make another payment in your life. <laughs> that would be great. right? And if you're interested, I can tell you who my lender is. But that's what Jesus did. Jesus took and he paid off what you owe to God the Father because of your sin. A debt that you cannot pay without dying. And Jesus did it. I believe that not only did he die for my sins, but that he rose back to life on the third day, just as he said he would, and just as Scripture indicated it would happen. I believe that, that Jesus rose from the dead. Listen to what Acts chapter three, 1, verse 3 says. It says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I believe that, that Jesus ascended into heaven at the right hand. What's it say in verse 9? It says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. I believe that, that, that he, he continued to do that, and so you even see in the book of Acts down the road, we'll talk about that in chapter 7, when this man Stephen, who was a deacon, a disciple, just like Philip with our children's thing, we see in verse, verse 55 and 56 of Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who is full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he saw what? The glory of God. And Jesus, what? Standing at the right hand of God. And he, and he said, behold, I see the heavens open. All right? And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I believe that Jesus is not only there in heaven, but that he's coming back soon. And I pray in my lifetime and in yours. In Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, we see that the same thing is going on. He says, And while they were gazing into the heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back. And he's coming back to take not the whole world, but just those who have put their faith 
and their trust in him. Those who believe in him and who now are living proof that he is alive. So why are we here? I mean, why do we come and worship? Why are we part of this church? Why, why do we send missionaries out into the world to change the world? I mean, why do we pray? Why do we give financially, sacrificially? Because we're compelled by the love of God. We're convinced that Jesus died on the cross for us. So the reason of our mission is simple. The reason is Jesus. And Jesus has called us to make disciples who love God and others. Now the second thing is this, the resource of this mission. In Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it says, And while they were while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the principle of the Scripture, I think it's often missed, that the principle is this, every time God commissions somebody to do something, He always gives them the means and the ability to accomplish it. Always. He never asks us to do something that He will not provide for us the resources to do it. He doesn't send us out on a mission impossible. He sends us out on a mission possible because He's prepared us for it. When He sent Moses to lead the people back out of Egypt in the bondage of slavery there, He gave Moses what he needed in order to get that job done. Moses said, I can't speak. I'm scared. I'm not the right person. I can't handle this because if I go back, they're going to kill me. Besides, I have trouble talking. But God said, don't worry. I already got this figured out. Listen to what he said in Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, said to him, Who's made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what to say. You shall speak. God not only gives him words, but he empowered him to accomplish the task through the miraculous events. I mean, it's kind of hard to forget the ten plagues, isn't it? And that staff that turned into the serpent? We remember those things because the miraculous things that transpired that Pharaoh finally even said, go and take everything you want. God always provides. Not only did he give him the words, but he empowered him to accomplish that task. And Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into all the world and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then continue to teach them everything that Jesus has commanded. And what? And he'll be there right with us. He's not going to abandon us. He's going to be there to help us to do that. So it's not an impossible task that God has called us to do. This God who specializes in impossible things is enabling us to do it because God fills us with the power of his Holy Spirit. So we can make disciples. We can teach them to love God and others. 
and it's easy. Now, Jesus said, I'll never leave you, and I'll always be with you. So the Holy Spirit comes as our prompter. He comes as the one to inspire us and to motivate us and to gift us with the abilities and the things that we need to do. He comes as our comforter and encourager, and He gives us the power to do the things that God wants us to do. In Acts chapter 3, there's this wonderful example in the story where Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And as they're making their their way up uh, through those steps, there is a a man that is laying there who has been lame his life. And and the only thing that he can do to make a living is his family or friends can bring him and just lay him there before people go into the temple and he can ask people for money. Can you help out some alms, some, some money to, so I can get some food? So I can, you know, and he just begs every day. But Peter and John, listen what happens, transpires here in Acts chapter 3, verse 6. Peter says to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Suddenly that man is walking and leaping and he's running around the temple and he's celebrating and he's overjoyed because he has the ability now to walk. And all he was searching for was money. But God knows the needs of the people that you're going to encounter in your life daily. And if you will take the time to stop and initiate a conversation with them, he will provide you with what is necessary to meet their needs. But you've got to be willing to be used. In chapter 4, we get a wonderful explanation of what happens next, beginning in verse 7. When they had set them in the midst, this is the, the, uh, the rulers of the Sanhedrin there at the temple area. They're kind of upset because of what's going on with this man walking in, around, and they want to know whose authority did this take place? And so everybody points to Peter and John. They say, they did it. And so instead of just asking Peter and John, they arrest them. Arrested them for what? For the healing of this man. So now here we go. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, listen here, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified... When God, whom God raised from the, uh, from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You want to know where we got the power to heal this man who was crippled? Under whose name did we do this? Jesus, the man you all killed, but the man God raised back to life. And it's only in him that we're going to find salvation. See, here's the point. Ordinary people, 
those who have never been to great schools of theology or education, like Peter and John, who don't know all the inner workings and all the answers, just ordinary people who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, have more power than all the governments and all the institutions this world has ever seen. Because we operate with the resources of heaven. This ruling body of Israel, they could not stand against these ordinary men like Peter and John when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And the world today does not stand a chance when the church recognizes that we have the same Spirit living within us. And we should never have to surrender to anything. Tony Campolo, he was a speaker, preacher, author. Um, he was invited to go speak uh, at a, a ladies' meeting one time. There were 300 women that were there, and before he, he spoke, the, the president of their organization, organization, she stood up, and she had this letter from a missionary, and she wanted to read it to everybody, and it was, it was a moving letter that she said, but in the letter, the missionary basically was saying that, that I had some, uh, some needs that, that we need to have about $4,000 to accomplish the mission here. And so the president of this organization, before the women, she said this. She says, we need to pray that God will provide the resources to meet the need of this missionary. Brother Campolo, will you please pray for us? And Tony said, no. <laughs> he says, no. And she said, I beg your pardon? And Campolo says, no, I won't pray for that. He said, I believe that God has already provided the resources and all we need to do is give it. He says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the first step over to this table and I'm going to take out all the cash in my pockets and put it on the table. And I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. And so the lady then says, well, we kind of understand what, what he's trying to get across to us, that God provides for all these things. So when we take up the offering, if you would, he says, no, 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 you don't get it. This is what he said. He says, I believe that God has already provided the resources. All we need to do is give. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to step up to the table and give every bit of cash I have in my pocket. And if you all will do the same thing, I think God has already provided the resources and she's like a little chuckle. I think Tony's trying to teach us, you know, that, uh, that how we need to give sacrificially. And he said, no, that's not what I'm trying to teach you. I'm trying to teach you that God has already provided for this missionary, and all we need to do is give. Here, I'm going to put down all the money I have. And he did. So he walked over, he took out of his pocket $15, he put it on the table, and he stood there. And he looked at her. So she opened up her purse and she pulled out her money, about $40, and she put it in. And then the ladies began coming up and emptying their purses and their pockets and putting in the money. Shortly they realized that there was over $4,000 that was given that day. God always provides the resources. The problem is sometimes we're keeping it for ourselves rather than giving it.
The resource that God has provided for us is His Holy Spirit. And I believe with all my whole heart that He has given everything that this church needs to change our community for Christ. We can make disciples who love God and others if we are willing not only to empty our pockets, but to open our hearts. The third thing is this, the responsibility of this mission. In Acts chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, He said to them, this is Jesus, It is not for you to know the times or season that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. As Christians, we are to be Christ's witnesses. Everywhere. Wherever we go. You see, we each have a a different testimony and a very relative testimony that is desperately needed in this world so that people just like you and me will be able to find salvation in Christ. Here's a problem that we often don't recognize. That we think we believe and everybody else believes, but they don't. They may not know all that you know, and you say, I don't know much. But what you do know is this. He has allowed His Spirit to dwell within you. And that Spirit will empower you to make a difference. You've got a testimony that you need to speak. You cannot keep it to yourselves. In 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7, there's a really interesting story that takes place. Uh, King uh, Ben-Hadad, he's the king of Syria. Uh, he's in, a, in, a, in an argument with the king in, in Samaria. And so he's taken his arm and he has surrounded the, the city of Samaria uh, and, and he's laying siege upon them and trying to starve them out until they either surrender themselves or they die within the city. Now as, as the days and the months go by, the people are literally starving to death. They're willing to eat anything, and they're willing to pay anything to eat it. We're told there in chapter 6 that the Bible says that the donkey's head was sold for about 80 shekels of silver and basically a cup of dove's dung for about five shekels. So what is a shekel in the Bible? Kind of look at it. It was, it was a, a financial thing, money that was based upon a unit of measurement in silver or gold. So it's based upon weight. So in today's current market, I kind of tried to do some study on that um, this week, and it came down to this. A shekel would probably be about, for us today, about $20, give or take, depending on the silver market. All right? So what that means is for somebody to be able to purchase a donkey's head so that they can eat it, they would spend about $1,600. For them to buy a cup of Dove's excrement, yeah, they would pay about $100. Talking about hungry? 
These people are hungry. They got so hungry that ladies were even making contracts with each other that they would kill their children and eat their children. So the contract would be, we'll eat yours first, and then when that's gone, then we'll eat mine. And they were taking each other to court within the city, laid siege, because she won't give up her child. We gave up mine, but she won't give up hers. Now, the story really gets interesting in chapter 7 because we learn about some lepers who are living there around the city. So it talks about these four lepers. They're at the city gates who are trying to deal with their situation. And, and they're starting to think, you know, we're all going to die. We're, we're going to die. And, and all of us are going to die. And finally they decided, let's surrender ourselves to the enemy. And, and they may kill us, but who cares? We're going to die anyway. We may die faster that way. Or they may make us prisoners and they will feed us. So these four lepers decide that they're going to go down and, and, and just go into the enemy's camp and surrender themselves and see what happens. So as they begin to head out that way during the night, this is what the Bible says in chapter 7, that God caused the army, the soldiers, to hear hoof prints and the sound of chariots coming. And so the men there and, and Ben-Hadad, the king, they all think that Samaria has hired Egypt and their soldiers and their army to come and destroy them. And so in the middle of the night, they're afraid. They all start to flee and they run away. Well, by the time the lepers get to the city or, or to, the, to the area, the camp of the enemy, nobody's there. They're looking for somebody to surrender to and nobody's there. Then they go into the tents and they find food. And the tables are filled and they start gorging themselves. But listen what happens then. Suddenly, this, this wonderful verse transpires. In 2 Kings 7, 9, Then they said to one another, We're not right doing this. This day is a day of good news. If we're silent and we wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household the king of Samaria. And so they run back to the city and they tell the people, and they tell the king that the enemy is gone and there's just food out there for everybody and they've left everything, all their gold and silver and clothing and everything has just been abandoned there because the enemy is gone. They don't believe them. So they send out some spies and the spies go out and they discover the truth. You're right. The enemy is gone. And so everybody has the ability to be fed and starvation is over. These starving people come and they are fed and they're satisfied. That's a picture of our world, isn't it? We come to God's house and we're fed. We could turn on the radio or the television or go through the internet and Facebook and, and see all kinds of things through the internet about the message of God and the word of God as it's preached and proclaimed. And we can listen to Christian radio here in the area and we hear songs that are wondrous and glorious and tell about the story and the testimony that God has for people. But isn't it sad that you and I are eating so much and the rest of the world is going hungry? We've got good news. And the responsibility is for us to go and to tell them. The mission of the church is to take it to the world. We are called to make disciples who love God and others. So that's what we've come to remember today that we have a mission.
And God has called us, and God is willing to give us the resources to accomplish that mission. And now we just need to discover it is our responsibility to this mission to go and to tell other people about it. So what are we going to do with it? As we close out, I think you need to understand the mission is this. Simply, you and I, we are supposed to make disciples. How do we do that? You've got a story. You've got a testimony how God has worked in your life. And it's simply that. How selfish would it be for us to keep Jesus to ourselves and not share him with the world? Knowing that the riches of heaven are meant to be shared, the salvation from this living death is available to anybody who would just simply put their faith and their trust in him, they can be saved. It can be redeemed and rescued from a siege that Satan has encamped around their life. But instead, we still allow people to devour each other. And all we need to do is get up and go. First Christian Church, you are challenged by Christ to make disciples who love God and others. And it's a simple thing because He's given you everything you need to do it. But will you accept it? That's the invitation for you this morning. Will you be willing to tell other people about Jesus? Jesus.